Hello, everyone, and welcome back. It's lovely to have you all here. Did I abuse her, show her disdain? Why does she run from me? The heart she has won from me. Agony! I heard a noise out in the hallway. This is the song that's been stuck in my head today. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, I've been I've been working on some projects. Which, if y'all are curious about what those projects might be, matter of fact, let me let me adjust my view here so y'all can get a, a better take on this. So yeah, a little bit, a little bit of painting. Uh, let me see how well I can show this to y'all. Um, now. Do these shapes mean anything to any of y'all? Probably not. At least not yet. But uh, hopefully, at some point soon, they're going to make a lot more sense. Oops. That was supposed to be like a, a cool, good reveal, and instead it was like a, a dumb goofball moment. Okay, there we go. That's what you get. That's all you get for right now, folks. Uh, yes, indeed. Into the woods. Into the woods to grandmother's house we go. You know nothing of madness till you're climbing her hair and you see her up there as you're nearing her. I did not, did not support the breath on that one. All the while hearing her. Ah, agony. <laughs> yeah, a little bit of, a little bit of set work. Now the question is, can my camera handle it? Because the I, I'm not sure that it can, uh, and if not, then I'm gonna have to figure out some other camera solution. Um, I have been having some issues with getting it to, like, this camera has been working super well for my face. Like, I, this, I, I could not hope for a better image here. Frame rate's good, it handles, like, uh, sufficient light, maybe slightly less than sufficient light, really well. Which means that this camera has overall been treating me really nicely. Uh, no, no issues there. You know what? That almost seemed like it was better when it was up there like that. Is that true? No? Eh. Hard to tell. Hard to tell. Um, but, uh, yeah, when I'm trying to get it to sort of pick up uh, detail on the, the miniature side of things, a little hard to work with. So, we'll see. We'll see how it goes. But I can tell you all, we had an excellent session yesterday. It was so good. If y'all are curious about what we are doing on Wednesdays, well... I hope you will check in. Um, those VODs are available over uh, on Side Cannons! Uh, you can find those wherever you are finding the Flying Sidecar. Uh, and you can also look for those on YouTube because the, the video versions are up as well. Um, yesterday we had a special guest. Some of y'all may remember Mr. Halfbit. And Mr. Halfbit played a character in a... Um, essentially what was a memory sequence from one of our characters. So, if you're curious about that, if you want to know about... Uh, uh, flying lightning creatures, definitely go and check on in. Um, and so, I am hoping that at some point very soon, you know, I've been, I've been building a lot of stuff for this. I've got a little, I've got a little, like, uh, uh, rotator table for some of this stuff. I just need a camera that will be able to pick up enough resolution to do this. So, fingers crossed that we can make it work sometime soon. Um, in the meantime, I'm making big old castle ruins. Uh, the <laughs> the thing about yesterday, my Wi-Fi did go ahead and fully crap out. Now, I did some investigating. 
I was all ready to get on the phone, very angry, because frankly, yesterday, I got hit with a Wi-Fi. We got like a couple of trips and then Wi-Fi cut out, fully cut out, fully cut out at the like, I needed like 120 seconds longer. And then my Wi-Fi fully went dead. Y'all may remember we had a couple of issues with Wi-Fi last week as well. So I did some digging. I wanted to, I wanted to be on the phone, very angry, but instead I checked the wiring first and it is possible that Clover is responsible for our Wi-Fi outages. <gasps> That's right. <laughs> How could it come to this? Betrayed? Well, yes. Um, so the cords for our router and stuff go sort of right down next to the, um, <laughs> right down next to uh, the litter box, which means she has to sort of like brush past them on the way to the litter box. And so I checked some cords and there was one that was loose and it was to the router. So I have moved those out of the way and we shall see if that improves our Wi-Fi situation because I was able to connect to my phone, which was very strange, but not the ethernet version, which is on my desktop here. So I think that might've been the culprit. When I checked it, the cord was very, very loose. Um, and so I've plugged it fully back in, moved those cords out of the way, and it's possible that I have solved the saboteur issue of Clover. So, Clover, I blame you. Is it your fault? Probably not really, but I do blame you. Folks, today, chapters four, five, and six of the second Hunger Games book. Van says, I lurked in yesterday and it was pretty cool. I'm glad you enjoyed it. Yeah, so the, the ending yesterday is going to remain a mystery until you watch the VODs. Um, I will also make sure to post that <laughs> in other spots because um, there's a big twist right there at the end. Right there at the end uh, that I, I wonder if some of you might guess. Uh, but yeah, right when, we, right when we cut to black there unintentionally, um, well, big twist big twist and then we're going to be going back on Wednesday uh we're going to be going back to the uh our sort of normal proceedings back at school we were in we were in a uh, a memory sequence and then we're going to be back with Igor and Illyria back at school uh Igor has got some more classes to go to learn a little bit of history with uh Orif Basarand the bone man uh and then we have got Illyria who is going to begin their expeditioneering courses not only that, but Illyria's first transformation is coming up. They don't know when. They've just been warned. It's on its way. Um, very exciting times at Vesperal Academy. So come check out Night School. It's very exciting times on Wednesday, noon Pacific time. Uh, or, as I mentioned, side cannons, wherever you find your podcasts. Addy, hello. How are you? It has been a while. Welcome back. Welcome back to you. Um, and uh, Sanders wondering, will Halfbit be there again next week? No, Mr. Halfbit uh, was a one-time engagement for this time. Um, we've talked about it. This is the, you know, he was able to commit to one episode this time. Uh, maybe more in the future. I, I would absolutely love it. But I've also got another guest lined up. Not for this week, not for this coming week, but I've got another guest, and I would love to just keep rolling guests into it. And if people become part of the permanent cast, I'm not going to be mad about that, am I? <laughs> so, um, yeah, I, I figured let's just start the show. We could have some fun. And instead of sort of, uh, you know, trying to go into it with a full cast already lined up, 
I'll just add cast over time. I will slowly, like a Venus flytrap, like a <laughs> like a honey trap. I am going to uh, I'm going to slowly catch them in my twisted web. <laughs> Weird energy today, folks. Chapters four, five, and six, which means we have to do a bit of review, don't we? Don't we? Addy, I hope you're having a good one. Uh, uh, Natalie, glad to have you here. Van, Sander, Mortal, Gang. Gang. I hope you're excited. Orly Rose loved it. I'm so glad. I'm so glad. Um, yeah, because we are doing, I mean, it's, frankly, it is a better campaign than our first one. I'm so excited that uh, we are growing. But I gotta stop talking about it. I don't want to overload y'all. Um, go check it out, Side Cannons, uh, wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube, you can find Night School at Vesperal Academy. Um, now, chapters four, five, and six, which means we have to do a bit of review, chapters one, two, and three, because last week was our first episode, our very first episode of this book. Episode one. Now, in episode one, we find out that one of these big sort of life-changing tides in Katniss's life isn't quite what she expected. This big life-changing tide is she has to maintain this facade that she and Peta are just as in love as they were in the arena. She thinks, okay, it's been six months since the games. It's time for the victor's tour. We're going to tour the districts. We have to, you know, sort of play pretend once more, and then that's it. It's done with. After this year, after these new games, there are going to be new victors, I'm not going to have to worry about this. I'm going to go back to my old life just just a little bit longer. And unfortunately, it does not seem that that is the case. Katniss is trying to go back to a normal life, doing some hunting, but Gale is now working 12 hours a day in the mines and can't hunt quite as often anymore. As a matter of fact, they only get to hunt together on Sundays. Okay. Katniss brings the game in and heads over to the hob, but now instead of having, you know, arms and armfuls of game, uh, really sort of setting up her relationships with people based on what she's able to bring in, instead, now she's got pockets full of money. She tries to, you know, make as many purchases as she can, sort of spreading it out because she owes these people a lot. Uh, and nobody, including and especially Gail, likes to take handouts. So she tries to make lots of purchases with her, uh, with the money that she's afforded after winning the games. Um, she goes and visits Haymitch and Peta, and Haymitch is back to his old drunken self. It seems that his main pursuit right now is simply to drown out memories of the games, both his own, 25 years ago during the second quarter quell during the 50th annual Hunger Games. That was the one that he won. Now, as of the 75th annual Hunger Games, once again, a quarter quell, meaning these Hunger Games are going to have some sort of major twist. Now, the uh, other victors, you know, uh, Peta, Katniss, they've each got their quote-unquote talents that they use to occupy themselves, staying distracted. Katniss mostly hunts, but she's got Cinna helping her to maintain a uh, uh, <laughs> a false sense of talent in clothing design. Uh, and then Peta is baking and painting and designing. Um, but this is not sufficient distraction to keep Katniss's sort of mind above water when she gets a visit from President Snow. 
in chapter two. President Snow arrives and the entirety of this conversation essentially boils down to one thing. President Snow has been watching very closely and knows about Katniss. But more importantly, he needs her to convince the districts that she was not inciting any kind of rebellion. She had no rebellious intent. It was only, she only did what she did at the end of those games because she was in, in love with PETA, madly in love with PETA. Seems that there have been some uprisings, or at least whispers of them. Tides of uprising starting to roll in. And President Snow basically makes it clear I can kill anyone that you love if you don't convince the people that rebellion, uprising, not really on the menu, not really on Katniss's mind. She's no leader. She's no uh, no inspiration. She's just she's just a girl in love. Chapter three. Katniss has to discuss this with Peta. They're on their way uh, back toward the capital to begin the victor's tour, the victory tour. Um, she tells Hamish about this, and Hamish sort of clears up the big thing that Katniss has been wrong about for six months. She thought the victory tour was going to be the end of it. She just needed to push through the next couple of weeks, and then... She would be free of the lies and the deceit and, and having to lie with, you know, Peter right there and kind of continue to hurt him. Nope. Hamish makes it very clear. The rest of your life, you are going to have to be madly in love with that boy. That's where we are. Katniss understands now that she really doesn't have either of the lives that she could imagine for herself. The one she really wanted, which was to never marry, um, to, to live and uh, never ever risk having kids that could get tied up in the Hunger Games, um, you know, or at the very least, you know, being tied up in the, the miseries of living in the districts. The other one that she had only just begun to consider was potentially a life with Gale. In fact, they had shared a bit of a kiss in the forest. Um, something that surprised Katniss. Surprised even more when President Snow indicated, in spite of the secret uh, nature, the clandestine nature of their meeting, he knew about that kiss. So President Snow basically knows everything. Katniss knows that this is not a, a, a deception that can ever end if she wants to protect her loved ones. And that is where we're at. That is where we find ourselves as we head on into our next chapter. Van says Katniss left one series of misfortunes under the Capitol's thumb for another completely different set of misfortune under the Capitol's thumb. Um, yes, precisely. Uh, the, the games are one thing. And now she's sort of realizing like the games... I, I do want to go into this really, really quickly. Um, I'm not going to spend more than two minutes on it. But yes, indeed, the games are just a method, right? They are they are the foundation. Or maybe pillars would be a better way to say it. They are pillars that support a whole sort of way of life. Um, a whole illusion of control and superiority maintained by the capital. And so, if... The capital is going to maintain that illusion. They have to keep those pillars up. And if they're going to keep the pillars up, they need to threaten Katniss. And so now they're making this Katniss's problem. 
she needs to maintain one of these pillars. Pillar number 74 of the the power of the capital. Dang it. Dang it. Hold on. I've dropped my remote for the air conditioning. Was I hoping for a much smoother intro than this? Yes. Chapter 4 We slog back to the train in silence. In the hallway outside my door, Hamish gives my shoulder a pat and says, You could do a lot worse, you know. He heads off to his compartment, taking the smell of wine with him. In my room, I remove my sodden slippers, my wet robe and pajamas. There are more in the drawers, but I just crawl between the covers of my sheets in underclothes. I stare into the darkness, thinking about my conversation with Haymitch. Everything he said was true about the Capitol's expectations. My future with PETA, even his last comment. Of course, I could do a lot worse than PETA. That isn't really the point, though, is it? One of the few freedoms that we have in District 12 is the right to marry who we want to, or not marry at all. And now, even that has been taken away from me. I wonder if President Snow will insist that we have children. If we do, they'll have to face the reaping each year. And wouldn't it be something to see the child of not one, but two victors chosen for the arena? Victors' children have been in the ring before. It always causes a lot of excitement and generates talk about how the odds are not in the family's favor. But it happens too frequently to just be about odds. Gale's convinced the Capitol does it on purpose, rigs the drawings to add extra drama. Given all the trouble I've caused, I've probably guaranteed any child of mine a spot in the games. I think of Haymitch. Unmarried, no family, blotting out the world with drink. He could have his choice of any woman in the district, and he chose solitude. Not solitude, that sounds too peaceful. More like solitary confinement. Was it because, having been in the arena, he knew it was better than risking the alternative? I had a taste of that alternative when they called Prim's name on Reaping Day, and I watched her walk to the stage to her death. But as her sister, I could take her place, an option forbidden to our mother. My mind searches frantically for a way out. I can't let President Snow condemn me to this even if it means taking my own life. Before that, though, I would try to run away. What would they do if I simply vanished? Disappeared into the woods and never came out? Could I even manage to take everyone I love with me? Start a new life deep in the wild? Highly unlikely. But not impossible. I shake my head to clear it. 
This is not the time to be making wild escape plans. I must focus on the victory tour. Too many people's fates depend on me giving a good show. Dawn comes before sleep does, and there is Effie rapping on my door. I pull on whatever clothes are at the top of the drawer and drag myself down to the dining car. I don't see what difference it makes when I get up, since this is a travel day, but then it turns out that yesterday's makeover was just to get me to the train station. Today, I'll get the works for my prep team. Why, it's too cold for anything to show, I grumble. Not in District 11, says Effie. District 11, our first stop. I'd rather start in any other district, since this was Rue's home. But that's not how the Victory Tour works. Usually it kicks off in 12 and then goes in descending district order to 1, followed by the capital. The Victor's District is skipped and saved for the very last. Since 12 puts on the least fabulous celebration, usually just a dinner for the tributes and a victory rally in the square, where nobody looks like they're having any fun, it's probably best to get us out of the way as soon as possible. This year, for the first time since Hamish won, the final stop on the tour will be 12, and the capital will spring for the festivities. I try to enjoy the food, like Hazel said. The kitchen staff clearly wants to please me. They've prepared my favorite, lamb stew with dried plums, among other delicacies. Orange juice and a pot of steaming hot chocolate wait at my place at the table. So I eat a lot, and the meal is beyond reproach, but I can't say I'm enjoying it. I'm also annoyed that no one but Effie and I have shown up. Where's everyone else? I ask. Oh, who knows where Hamish is, says Effie. I didn't really expect Hamish, because he's probably just getting to bed. Sinner was up late working on organizing your garment car. He must have over a hundred outfits for you. Your evening clothes are exquisite, and Peter's team is probably still sleeping. Doesn't he need prepping? Not the way that you do, Effie replies. What does this mean? It means I get to spend the morning having my hair ripped off my body while Peter sleeps in. I hadn't thought about it much, but in the arena, at least some of the boys get to keep their body hair, whereas none of the girls did. I can remember Peter's now, as I bathed him by the stream, very blonde in the sunlight once the mud and blood had been washed away. Only his face remained completely smooth. Not one of the boys grew a beard, and many were old enough to. I wonder what they did to them. If I feel ragged, my prep team seems in worse condition, knocking back coffee and sharing brightly colored little pills. As far as I can tell, they never get up before noon unless there's some sort of national emergency, like my leg hair. I was so happy when it grew back in, too. As if it were a sign that things might be returning to normal. I run my fingers along the soft, curly down on my legs and give myself over to the team. None of them are up to their usual chatter, so I can hear every strand being yanked from its follicle. I have to soak in a tub full of a thick, unpleasant-smelling solution, while my face and hair are plastered with creams. Two more baths follow each other, in less offensive concoctions. I'm plucked and scoured and massaged and anointed until I'm raw. Flavius tilts up my chin and sighs. It's a shame Sinner said no alterations to you. Yes, we can make you something really special. When she's older, says Venia, almost grimly, then he'll have to let us. Do what? 
blow my lips up like President Snow's, tattoo my breasts, dye my skin magenta and implant gems in it, cut decorative patterns in my face, give me curved talons or cat whiskers. I saw all of these things and more on the people in the Capitol. Do they really have no idea how freakish they look to the rest of us? The thought of getting left to my prep team's fashion whims only adds to the miseries competing for my attention. My abused body, my lack of sleep, my mandatory marriage, and the terror of being unable to satisfy President Snow's demands. By the time I reach lunch, where Effie, Cinna, Portia, Hamish, and Peta have started without me, I'm too weighed down to talk. They're raving about the food and how well they sleep on trains. Everyone's all full of excitement about the tour. Well, everyone but Hamish. He's nursing a hangover and picking at a muffin. I'm not really hungry either. Maybe because I loaded up too much on the rich stuff this morning, or maybe because I'm so unhappy. I play around with a bowl of broth, eating a spoonful or two. I can't even look at Peta, my designated future husband, although I know none of this is my fault. People notice, try to bring me into the conversation, but I just brush them off. At some point, the train stops. Our server reports that it will not just be for a fuel stop. Some part has malfunctioned and must be replaced. It will require at least an hour. This sends Effie into a state. She pulls out her schedule and begins to work out how the delay will impact every event for the rest of our lives. Finally, I can't stand to listen to her anymore. No one cares, Effie, I snap. Everyone at the table stares at me. Even Haymitch, who you'd think would be on my side in this matter since Effie drives him nuts. I'm immediately put on the defensive. Well, no one does, I say, and I get up and leave the dining car. The train suddenly seems stifling. I'm definitely queasy now. I find the exit door, force it open, triggering some sort of alarm, which I ignore, and jump to the ground, expecting to land in snow. But the air is warm, balmy against my skin. The trees still wear green leaves. How far south have we come in a day? I walk along the track, squinting against the bright sunlight, already regretting my words to Effie. She's hardly to blame for my current predicament. I should go back and apologize. My outburst was the height of bad manners, and manners matter deeply to her. My feet continue along the track, past the end of the train, leaving it behind. An hour's delay. I can walk at least twenty minutes in one direction and make it back with plenty of time to spare. Instead, after a couple of hundred yards, I sink to the ground and sit there, looking into the distance. If I had a bow and arrows, would I just keep going? After a while, I hear footsteps behind me. It'll be Hamish coming to chew me out. It's not like I don't deserve it, but I still don't want to hear it. I'm not in the mood for a lecture, I warn the clump of weeds by my shoes. But hey, I'll try to keep it brief. Peter takes a seat beside me. I thought you were Hamish, I say. No, he's still working on that muffin. I watch as Peter positions his artificial leg. A bad day, huh? It's nothing. He takes a deep breath. Look, Katniss, I've been wanting to talk to you about the way that I acted on the train. I mean the last train, the one that brought us home. 
I knew you had something with Gale. I was jealous of him before I even officially met you. And it wasn't fair to hold you to anything that happened in the games, I'm sorry. His apology takes me by surprise. It's true that Peter froze me out after I confessed my love for him during the games was something of an act. But I didn't hold that against him. In the arena, I'd played that romance angle for all it was worth. There have been times when I didn't honestly know how I felt about him. I still don't. Not really. I'm sorry, too, I say. I'm not sure for what exactly. Maybe because there's a real chance I'm about to destroy him. I had nothing for you to be sorry about. You were just keeping us alive. But I don't want to go on like this, ignoring each other in real life and falling into the snow every time there's a camera around. So I thought that if I stopped being so wounded, you know, I could take a shot at just being friends. All of my friends are probably going to end up dead, but refusing Peter wouldn't keep him safe. Okay, I say. His offer does make me feel better. Less duplicitous, somehow. It would be nice if he had come to me with this earlier, before I knew that President Snow had other plans, and just being friends was not an option for us anymore. But either way, I'm glad we're speaking again. So? What's wrong? I can't tell him. I pick at the clump of weeds. Alright, let's start with something more basic then. Isn't it strange that I know that you risk your life to save mine, but I don't know what your favourite colour is? A smile creeps onto my lips. Green? What's yours? Orange. Orange? Like Effie's hair? A bit more muted. More like... Sunset. Sunset. I can see it immediately. The rim of the descending sun, the sky streaked with soft shades of orange. Beautiful. I remember the tiger lily cookie, and now that Peter is talking to me again, it's all I can do not to recount the whole story about President Snow, but I know Hamish wouldn't want me to. It would be better to stick to small talk. You know, everyone's always raving about your paintings. I feel bad I haven't seen them. Well, I've got a whole train car full. He rises and offers me his hand. Come on. It's good to feel his fingers entwined with mine again. Not for show, but in actual friendship. We walk back to the train hand in hand. At the door, I remember. Uh, you've got to apologize to Effie first. Don't be afraid to lay it on thick, Peter tells me. So, when we go back into the dining car, while the others are still at lunch, I give Effie an apology that I think is overkill, but in her mind probably just manages to compensate for my breach of etiquette. To her credit, Effie accepts graciously. She says it's clear I'm under a lot of pressure, and her comments about the necessity of someone attending the schedule only lasts five minutes. Really, I've gotten off easily. When Effie finishes, Peter leads me down a few cars to see his paintings. I don't know what I expected. Larger versions of the flower cookies, maybe? But this is something entirely different. PETA has painted the games. Some you wouldn't get right away, 
if you hadn't been with him in the arena yourself, water dripping down through cracks in our cave, the dry pond bed, a pair of hands, his own, digging for roots, others that any viewer could recognize, the golden horn called the cornucopia, Clove arranging the knives inside her jacket, one of the mutts, unmistakably the blonde, green-eyed one meant to be Glimmer, snarling as it makes its way towards us. And me. I am everywhere. High up in a tree, beating a shirt against the stones in the stream, lying unconscious in a pool of blood. And one that I can't place. Perhaps this is how I looked when his fever was high, emerging from a silver-gray mist that matches my eyes exactly. What do you think? he asks. I hate them. I can almost smell the blood, the dirt, the unnatural breath of the mutt. All I do is going around trying to forget the arena. And you brought it back to life. How do you remember these things so exactly? I see them every night. I know what he means. Nightmares, which I was no stranger to before the games, now plague me whenever I sleep. But the old standby, the one of my father being blown to bits in the mines, is rare. Instead, I relive versions of what happened in the arena. My worthless attempt to save Rue... Peta bleeding to death, Glimmer's bloated body disintegrating in my hands. Cato's horrific end with the mutations. These are the most frequent visitors. Me too. Does it help to paint them out? I don't know. I think I'm a little less afraid of going to sleep at night, or I tell myself that I am. But they haven't gone anywhere. Maybe they won't. Hamage is haven't. Hamage doesn't say so, but I'm sure this is why he doesn't like to sleep in the dark. No. No, but for me, the, it's better to wake up with a paintbrush in my hand and a knife. You really hate them? Yes. But they're extraordinary, really. And they are. But I don't want to look at them anymore. Do you want to see my talent? Sin has done a great job on it. Peter laughs. <laughs> Later. The train lurches forward and I can see the land moving past us through the window. Come on. We are almost to District 11. Let's go take a look at it. We go down to the last car on the train. There are chairs and couches to sit on, but what's wonderful is that the back windows retract into the ceiling... So you're riding outside, in the fresh air, and you can see a wide sweep of the landscape. Huge open fields with herds of dairy cattle grazing in them, so unlike our own heavily wooded home. We slow slightly, and I think we might be coming in for another stop when a fence rises up before us. Towering at least 35 feet into the air and topped with wicked coils of barbed wire, it makes ours back in District 12 look childish. My eyes quickly inspect the base, which is lined with enormous metal plates. There would be no burrowing under those, no escaping to hunt. Then I see the watchtowers, placed evenly apart, manned with armed guards so out of place among the fields of wildflowers around them. Well, that's something different, 
says Peter. Rue did give me the impression that the rules in District 11 were more harshly enforced, but I never imagined something like this. Now the crops begin, stretched out as far as the eye can see. Men, women, and children wearing straw hats to keep the sun straighten up. Turn our way. Take a moment to stretch their backs as they watch our train go by. I can see orchards in the distance, and I wonder if that's where Rue would have worked, collecting the fruit from the slimmest branches at the tops of trees. Small communities of shacks, by comparison the houses in the seam are upscale, spring up here and there, but they're all deserted. Every hand must be needed for the harvest. On and on it goes. I can't believe the size of District 11. How many people do you suppose live here? Peter asks. I shake my head. In school they refer to it as a large district, that's all. No actual figures on the population. But those kids we see on camera waiting for the reaping each year, they can't be but a sampling of the ones who actually live here. What do they do? Have preliminary drawings? Pick the winners ahead of time and make sure that they're in the crowd? How exactly did Rue end up on that stage, with nothing but the wind offering to take her place? I begin to weary of the vastness, the endlessness of this place. When Effie comes to tell us to dress, I don't object. I go to my compartment and let the prep team do my hair and makeup. Cinna comes in with a pretty orange frock patterned with autumn leaves. I think how much Peter will like the color. Effie gets Peter and me together and goes through the day's program one last time. In some districts, the victors ride through the city while the residents cheer, but in Eleven, maybe because there's not much of a city to begin with, things are so spread out, or maybe because they don't want to waste so many people while the harvest is on, the public appearance is confined to the square. It takes place before their justice building, a huge marble structure. Once it must have been a thing of beauty, but time has taken its toll. Even on television you can see ivy overtaking the crumbling facade, the sag of the roof. The square itself is ringed with run-down storefronts, most of which are abandoned. Wherever the well-to-do live in District 11, it's not here. Our entire public performance will be staged outside what Effie refers to as the veranda, the tiled expanse between the front doors and the stairs, shaded by a roof, supported by columns. Peta and I will be introduced, the mayor of Eleven will read a speech in our honor, and will respond with a scripted thank you provided by the capital. If a victor has any special allies among the dead tributes, it's considered good form to add a few personal comments as well. I should say something about Rue. And Thresh, too, really. But every time I try to write it down, I end up with a blank paper staring me in the face. It's hard for me to talk about them without getting emotional. Fortunately, Peta has a little something worked up, and with some slight alterations, it can count for both of us. At the end of the ceremony, we'll be presented with some sort of plaque, and we can withdraw to the Justice Building, where a special dinner will be served. As the train is pulling into District 11 station, Oh boy, I got, I got some mumble mouth going on today, gang. Back into it. Let's see, can I, can I keep my mumble mouth from fully taking over? We shall find out. It's like my version of Venom, but uh, lame. If a victor had any special allies, I definitely read that already. Where the heck are we? How did I get so lost? As the train is pulling into the District 11 station, Cinna puts the finishing touches on my outfit. 
switching my orange hairband for one of metallic gold and securing the Mockingjay pin I wore on the arena to my dress. There's no welcoming committee on the platform. Just a squad of eight peacekeepers who direct us to the back of an armored truck. Effie sniffs as the door clanks closed behind us. Really, you'd think that we were all criminals, she says. Not all of us, Effie. Just me, I think. The truck lets us out at the back of the Justice Building. We are hurried inside. I can smell an excellent meal being prepared, but it doesn't block out the odors of mildew and rot. They've left us no time to look around. As we make a beeline for the front entrance, I can hear the anthem beginning outside the square. Someone clips a microphone onto me. Peter takes my left hand. The mayor is introducing us as the massive doors open with a groan. Big smiles, Effie says and gives us a nudge. Our feet start moving forward. This is it. This is where I've got to convince everyone how in love I am with Peter, I think. The solemn ceremony is pretty tightly mapped out, so I'm not sure how to do it. It's not a time for kissing, but maybe I can work one in. There's loud applause, but none of the other responses we get in the capital. The cheers and whoops and whistles. I walk across the shaded veranda until the roof runs out and we're standing at the top of a big flight of marble stairs in the glaring sun. As my eyes adjust, I see the buildings on the square have been hung with banners that help cover up their neglected state. It's packed with people, but again, just a fraction of the number who live here. As usual, a special platform has been constructed at the bottom of the stage for the families of the dead tributes. On Thresh's side, there's only an old woman with a hunched back and a tall, muscular girl I'm guessing is his sister. On Rue's, I'm not prepared for Rue's family. Her parents, whose faces are still fresh with sorrow. Her five younger siblings, who resemble her so closely, the slight builds the luminous brown eyes. They form a flock of small dark birds. The applause dies out and the mayor gives the speech in our honor. Two little girls come up with tremendous bouquets of flowers. Peter does his part of the scripted reply and then I find my lips moving to conclude it. Fortunately, my mother and Prem have drilled me so I can do it in my sleep. Peter had his personal comments written on a card, but he doesn't pull it out. Instead, he speaks in his simple, winning style about Thresh and Rue making it to the final eight, about how they both kept me alive, thereby keeping him alive, and how this is a debt that we can never repay. And then he hesitates before adding something that wasn't written on the card, maybe because he thought Effie might make him remove it. It can in no way replace your losses, losses. but as a token of our thanks, we'd like to give each of the Tributes families from District 11 one month of our winnings every year for the duration of our lives. The crowd can't help but respond with gasps and murmurs. There's no precedent for what PETA has done. I don't even know if it's legal. He probably doesn't know either so he didn't ask, just in case. As for the families, they just stare at us in shock. Their lives were changed forever when Thresh and Rue were lost, but this gift will change them again. A month of tribute winnings can easily provide for a family for a year. 
As long as we live, they will not hunger. I look at Peta, and he gives me a sad smile. I hear Hamish's voice. You could do a lot worse at this moment. It's impossible to imagine how I could do any better. The gift, it is perfect. So when I rise up on tiptoe to kiss him, it doesn't seem forced at all. The mayor steps forward and presents us each with a plaque that's so large I have to put down my bouquet to hold it. The ceremony's about to end when I notice one of Rue's sisters staring at me. She must be about nine, and is almost an exact replica of Rue, down to the way that she stands with her arms slightly extended. Despite the good news about the winnings, she's not happy. In fact, her look is reproachful. Is it because I didn't save Rue? No, I think. It's because I still haven't thanked her. A wave of shame rushes through me. The girl is right. How can I stand here, passive and mute, leaving all the words to Peta? If she had won, Rue never would have let my death go unsung. I remember how I took care in the arena to cover her with flowers, to make sure that her loss did not go unnoticed. But that gesture will mean nothing if I don't support it now. Wait! I stumble forward, pressing the plaque to my chest. My allotted time for speaking has come and gone, but I must say something. I owe too much. And even if I had pledged all my winnings to the families, it would not excuse my silence today. Wait, please, wait, please, wait, please, wait, please. I don't know how to start, but once I do, the words rush up from my lips as if they've been forming in the back of my mind for a long time. I want to give my thanks to the tributes of District 11. I look at the pair of women on Thresh's side. I only ever spoke only to Thresh one time, Thresh just one enough for him to spare my life. I didn't know him, but I always respected him. For his power. For his power. For his refusal to play the games on anyone's terms but his own. The careers wanted him to team up with him from the beginning. But he wouldn't do it. But he wouldn't do it. I respected him for that. I respected him for that. I respected him for that. For the first time, the old hunched woman. Is she Thresh's grandmother? Raises her head, and the trace of a smile plays on her lips. The crowd has fallen silent now. So silent, I wonder how they manage it. They must all be holding their breath. I turn to Rue's family. But I feel as if I did know Rue. And she'll always be with me. Everything beautiful brings her to mind. I see her in the yellow flowers that grow in the meadow by my house. I hear her in the mocking jays that sing in the trees. Most of all, I see her in my sister, Prim. My voice is undependable, but I'm almost finished. Thank you for your children. I raise my chin to address the crowd. And thank you all for the bread. I stand there feeling broken and small. Thousands of eyes trained on me. There's a long pause. And then from somewhere in the crowd...
Someone whistles Rue's four-note Mockingjay tune. The one that signaled the end of the workday in the orchards. The one that meant safety in the arena. By the end of the tune, I have found the whistler, a wizened old man in a faded red shirt and overalls. His eyes meet mine. What happens next is not an accident. It's too well executed to be spontaneous because it happens in complete unison. Every person in the crowd presses the three middle fingers of their left hand against their lips and extends them to me. It's our sign from District 12. The last goodbye I gave Rue in the arena. If I hadn't spoken to President Snow, this gesture might move me to tears. But with his recent orders to calm the district fresh in my ears, it fills me with dread. What will he think of this very public salute to the girl who defied the Capitol? The full impact of what I've done hits me. It wasn't intentional. I only meant to express my thanks, but I've elicited something dangerous. An act of dissent from the people of District 11. This is exactly the kind of thing I'm supposed to be diffusing. I try to think of something to say to undermine what has just happened, to negate it, but I can hear the slight burst of static indicating my microphone has been cut off and the mayor has taken over. Peter and I acknowledge a final round of applause. He leads me back toward the doors, unaware that anything has gone wrong. I feel funny and have to stop for a moment. Little bits of bright sunshine dance before my eyes. Are you all right? Peter asks. Just dizzy. The sun was so bright, I say. I see his bouquet. I forgot my flowers, I mumble. I'll get them. I can, I answer. We would be safe inside the Justice Building by now if I hadn't stopped. If I hadn't left my flowers. Instead, from the deep shade of the veranda, we see the whole thing. A pair of peacekeepers dragging the old man who whistled to the top of the steps. Forcing him to his knees before the crowd and putting a bullet through his head. You could say things are getting serious. The districts are not safe from the violence of the capital. This we knew before, but it had never hit Katniss in such a, in the same way. It was never direct responsibility. It was always just sort of generalized oppression. Not so much anymore. My chatterbreak question for you all as we move on into our next chapter is what could Katniss do? That's our question. What could Katniss do right now? If she wanted to comply with President Snow, what could she even do right now? Is there anything that could change what is happening? that could stem this tide.
Orly Rose says, my jaw dropped open like legit. She does not pull punchins. Punchins? What is the deal with my mouth today? Yeah, Courier 6, sorry about that. Sorry about the, uh, sorry about how things are going. Uh, how has the audio been for everyone else? I hope, uh, things are coming through okay for most folks, even if, uh, Proteus Spade, it's not happening for you. Sorry. Sorry, Courier 6. Van Saves Lives has such a good set of events. So good. I love this visit so much. And then in a follow-up message, Van says, I mean, not that last part, but everything else. <laughs> <laughs> there is, I mean, there is like a lot of, a lot of good to be had in this episode, but I also don't want to, this, man, this book is so important. Um, I don't want to skim over the fact that it's good because we know the genre that we are reading. Try to imagine actually living this, even even without that very last moment with the old man, right? Think about this, the, the sign of rebellion that they're showing, right? And being in Katniss's place. There is, there is a lot of fear that comes with participating in fighting against a structure of power. And that, that structure of power is not going to treat them well. And that fear, you don't get... The relief from that by moving on to another chapter when it's in real life. In real life, you don't have this, you know, a, a knowledge of the ending. You don't get to reread it a second time and go into it knowing that you are, uh, you know, you're knowing who's safe by the end and who isn't. In Katniss's position, she has none of those benefits. I think it's part of the reason that this story is written in first person. First person present, I should say. Um, it's th describing things as they happen right now, as opposed to describing things in the past tense, which means the future is not certain, even in the styling of this book. Even the styling of this book supports that idea that the future is not certain. And I think it's very important to identify and to recognize that for Katniss, there's no sense that this is like part of a larger movement that might be destined one way or another. For Katniss, it is just fear, because to participate in something like this is fear. There is fear, and there is always fear, and all that a person can do is to act in spite of that fear. To maintain values in spite of that fear. Van says, I think Katniss is in a tough spot, because what she has done to rally people was unintentional in the first place. She's like an accidental folk hero. Yeah, and this is the thing. When this power structure is built on top of this notion of cannot cannot have the districts supporting each other and working together that is that is sort of one of the main flavors of this oppression stew and so when Katniss has the very basic human value of uh, uh, kindness which I, I really enjoy uh, there were, uh, one of the Green Brothers had a, a take on this that like kindness and cooperation isn't a weakness it is the most powerful tool that humanity has developed in millions of years well you know hundreds of thousands of years wherever you want to put us on that timeline uh you know when is when is it when is the first one a human whatever whatever but it is the most powerful tool that that we have ever developed is our ability to cooperate language is in service of that cooperation so there's you know there's a, there's a lot of like you know a lot of 
yammering about like, oh no, no mercy or whatever. You know, you can't you can't show too much kindness. Otherwise, no cooperation, uh, love for one another. It is the most powerful thing that humanity has ever developed. So when you've got a uh, a group that is insistent upon uh, you know piling this oppression on top of that and 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 pushing down that cooperation. Even this very simple act from Katniss of appreciating someone who helped her, even that simple act will turn her into a folk hero, like Van is saying. Proteus Spade says, Katniss is living my nightmare, trying to juggle being inoffensive to an extremely powerful dominating force while simultaneously trying to be a decent person. Awful. Being decent is just offensive to the capital by default. Yes, precisely. Yes, absolutely. It is, I mean, it is offensive by default. It is It is an affront. It is an act of rebellion to be kind, to be decent, to be good. Orly Rose says, Katniss is in a hard place because for herself, she wouldn't care if Snow was offended. She would say what she wanted to encourage people to rebel, but it isn't her that's going to get hurt. So... What is she supposed to do with the knowledge that it will be Prim that gets hurt, right? That is, I mean, that is a, a very effective tool against folks who care strongly for other people is other people become points of pressure. And unfortunately, that is a, that is a simple reality. People are a point of pressure. And so uh, it is only by making sure that, you know, a prim has a gale to look out for her. Um, and Gale is, you know, Gale can be assured that Katniss is looking after his people. And a greasy say can be assured that, uh, you know, if she ever comes to it, you know, Katniss will be with her. And so you weave those, you weave those webs to one another. You, you, you throw those lines to one another and everyone holds on as tight as possible. And by that strength, by that strength, does the cooperation and the kindness and the love for each other overcome. It's by that joint strength. These are important books. Let's talk a bit of review and let's go on into our next chapter here. Chapter four, which we just read. The victory tour begins. Ra -da 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 -da. Katniss is back on the train, back with her uh, design team, uh, her aesthetics team being, uh, you know, uh, uh, groomed for... Uh, for display, frankly, because that's what it is, you know, uh, as a part of what supports this 74th pillar of the, the, the system of power uh, that the capital maintains over the districts, as part of the thing, as part of the foundation of that 74th pillar, it's just to sort of see her participating, right? If, if the capital gets what it wants, then it will get Katniss being seen to participate wholeheartedly in this display, Right? Because then Katniss is as complicit as everyone else. Katniss isn't some unique hero. Katniss is just another victor, another, uh, you know, vapid girl who just, oh, lovey-dovey. Or, you know, just a, another, like, weak individual who happened to come out on top in this 74, once out of 74 times that this has happened. And as such, everyone go back to your homes and do not worry. Uh, do not worry your little heads about thoughts of rebellion. No. Katniss Everdeen is just another piece of the machine. Great. Katniss can play that part. She has to. She's been told by uh, President Snow to quell rebellion. 
to quell uprisings, which there have been whispers of in the districts. He wants to keep those down, and he's going to make that Katniss's problem. Or people that she loves is going to get hurt, are going to get hurt, excuse me. When she arrives at this first location, well, I should, I should go back a little bit. First of all, uh, as they're on their way, she and Peta have a conversation and kind of come to a little bit of a better understanding. Like, can we at least be friends? Peta apologizes for kind of holding her to some of the things that they needed to do to survive, um, which I think is, a, is, I mean, it is very, very self-aware on Peta's part, but it is, I think it is a good observation for him. It, was it fair to him? No, but it's not like it was fair to Katniss either. Like, let's, let's not pretend like the... The, uh, <laughs> this was like uh, one of them was being unfair to the other one. Really, they did what they needed to do to survive, and uh, it's terrible for both of them. So Peta sort of says, in order to, you know, in order to get back to some semblance of what we were, let's be friends at least, shall we? So there's that. Um, and uh, they proceed on to District 11, which is their first stop. This is, of course, the district where from uh, Thresh and Rue hail, hailed. Of course, they were lost in the arena, and their families are here during the big ceremony to honor Peta and Katniss. And they go through their little scripted speech to thank the district, to thank them for, you know, their recognition as the victors of whatever. Blah, 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 blah. At the end, Peta wings it a little bit. He promises one month of their earnings, uh, of their sort of like victory, uh, pfft, what is it called? Uh, the victor's purse, whatever. Um, they get money every every month as part of this. So one month out of every year, they're going to give that to the families of Thresh and Rue. This is a regal gift. That one month of, of winning uh, of winnings is going to absolutely support these families through the year. They are not going to want for anything. Um and then Katniss goes a little off book as well. Katniss thanks the district at large. Thanks Thresh's uh, family, just uh, grandmother and sister, it would appear. Um, grandmother gives a bit of a smile. But even more so, she thanks Rue's family and says that basically all beautiful things remind me of Rue now. I, I see... Rue in my sister, in uh, uh, the I hear her in the songs of the birds, etc. You know, really a beautiful moment. And then someone in the crowd does that whistle that Rue taught to Katniss. And in such unison that it can't just be a coincidence, it must have been pre-planned by these people in the district. They give that three-fingered salute to... Katniss, the one that is from, it's a District 12 thing, and so you've got all these people in District uh, 11 doing it now, um, and clearly it is a sign of solidarity with Katniss, which would be exciting, it would be inspiring to Katniss if it weren't for the fact that this is exactly the sort of thing she has been ordered to prevent. And now she sees what the real consequences are, as she forgets her bouquet on the stage, tries to go back for it, and sees that the man who whistled, the man who began this little display, even in silence, is dragged up onto the stage and executed. That is where we find ourselves, and I don't necessarily want to say enjoy this chapter, considering what we've experienced thus far in this episode, 
but do listen closely. Chapter 5 The man has only just crumpled the ground when a wall of white peacekeeper uniforms blocks our view. Several of the soldiers have automatic weapons held lengthwise. They push us back toward the door. We're going! We're going! Says Peter, shoving the peacekeeper who's pressing on me. We get it! All right! Come on, Katniss! His arm encircles me and guides me back to the justice building. The peacekeepers follow a pace or two behind us. The moment we are inside, the doors slam shut and we hear the peacekeepers' boots moving back toward the crowd. Hamage, Effie, Portia, and Cinna wait under a static-filled screen that's mounted on the wall, their faces tight with anxiety. "'What happened?' says Effie, hurrying over. "'We lost the fee just after Katniss's beautiful speech, and then Hamage said he thought he had gunfire, and I thought that was ridiculous, but who knows? There are lunatics everywhere!' Nothing happened, Effie. An old truck backfired, says Peter evenly. Two more shots. The door doesn't muffle their sound much. Who was that? Thresh's grandmother, one of Rue's little sisters? Both of you with me, says Hamish. Peter and I follow him, leaving the others behind. The peacekeepers who are stationed around the Justice Building take little interest in our movements now that we are safely inside. We ascend a magnificent curved marble staircase. At the top, there's a long hall with a worn carpet on the floor. Double doors stand open, welcoming us into the first room that we encounter. The ceiling must be twenty feet high. Designs of fruit and flowers are carved into the molding, and small, fat children with wings look down at us from every angle. Vases of blossoms give off a cloying scent that makes my eyes itch. Our evening clothes hang on racks along the wall. This room has been prepared for our use— but we're barely there long enough to drop off our gifts. Then Hamish yanks the microphones from our chests, stuffs them beneath a couch cushion, and waves us on. As far as I know, Hamish has only been here once, when he was on his victory tour decades ago. But he must have a remarkable memory or reliable instincts, because he leads us through a maze of twisting staircases and increasingly narrow halls. At times, he has to stop and force a door. By the protesting squeak of the hinges, I can tell it's been a long time since it was opened. Eventually, we climb a ladder to a trapdoor. When Hamage pushes it open, we find ourselves in the dome of the Justice Building. It's a huge place filled with broken furniture, piles of books and ledgers, and rusty weapons. The coat of dust blanketing everything is so thick, it's clear it hasn't been disturbed for years. Light struggles to filter in through the four grimy square windows set in the sides of the dome. Hamage kicks the trapdoor shut and turns on us. What happened? he asks. Peter relates all that occurred in the square. The whistle, the salute, our hesitation on the veranda, the murder of the old man. What's going on, Hamish? It's going to be better coming from you, Hamish says to me. 
I don't agree. I think it will be a hundred times worse coming from me. But I tell Peter everything I can, as calmly as I can. About President Snow, the unrest in the district. I don't even omit the kiss with Gale. I lay out how we were all in jeopardy. How the whole country is in jeopardy because of my trick with the berries. I was supposed to fix things on this tour. Make everyone who had doubted believe that I acted out of love. Calm things down, but obviously all I've done today is get three people killed. And now everyone in the square is going to be punished. I feel so sick I have to sit down on a couch, despite the exposed springs and stuffing. And I made things worse too. By giving the money, says Peter. Suddenly, he strikes out at a lamp that sits precariously on a crate and knocks it across the room, where it shatters onto the floor. This has got to stop right now. This, this game that you two play where you tell each other secrets but you keep them from me because I'm too inso- inconsequential or stupid or weak to handle them. It's not like that, Peter. It's exactly like that, he yells at me. I've got people that I care about too, Katniss. Family and friends back in District 12 are going to be just as dead as yours if we can't pull this thing off. So after all that we went through in the arena, don't I even rate the truth from you. You're always so reliably good, Peter. You're so smart about how you present yourself before the cameras. I didn't want to disrupt that, says Hamish. Well, you overestimate to me, because I really screwed it up today. What do you think is going to happen to Ruse and Thresh's families? Do you think they're going to get their share of the winnings? you think I gave them a bright future? Because I think they're going to be lucky if they survive the day. Peter sends something else flying, a statue. I've never seen him like this. He's right, Hamish, I say. We were wrong not to tell him. Even back in the capital. Even in the arena. You two had some sort of system or do, didn't you? Peter asks, and his voice quiets. Something that I wasn't a part of. No. No, not officially. I could... Tell what Hamish wanted me to do by what he sent, or didn't send. Well, I never got that opportunity. Because he never sent me anything till you showed up, says Peter. I haven't thought much about this. How it must have looked from Peter's perspective when I appeared in the arena, having received burn medicine and bread, when he, who was at death's door, had got nothing. Like Hamish was keeping me alive at his expense. Alright, now look, boy. Don't bother, Hamish. I know that you had to choose one of us. I would have wanted that to be her. This is something different. People are dead out there. And more are going to follow unless we are very good. We all know that I'm better than Katniss in front of the cameras. No one needs to coach me on what to say, but I have to know what I'm walking into. Right. Right, from now on, you'll be fully informed, Hamish promises. I better be, says Peter. He doesn't even bother to look at me before he leaves. The dust he disrupted billows up and looks for new places to land. My hair, my eyes, my shiny gold pin. Did you choose me, Hamish? Yes. Why? 
you liked him better. That's true. But remember, until they changed the rules, I could only hope to get one of you out of there alive. I thought since he was determined to protect you, well, between the three of us, we might be able to bring you home. Well, is all I can think to say. You'll see. The choices that you've got to make. If we survive this, you'll learn. Well, I've learned one thing today. This place is not a larger version of District 12. Our fence is unguarded and rarely charged. Our peacekeepers are unwelcome but less brutal. Our hardships evoke more fatigue than fury. Here in Eleven, they suffer more acutely and feel more desperation. President Snow is right. A spark could be enough to set them ablaze. Everything's happening too fast for me to process it. The warning, the shootings, the recognition that I may have set something of great consequence into motion. The whole thing is so improbable. And it would be one thing if I had planned to stir things up, but given the circumstances, how on earth did I cause so much trouble? Come on! We've got a dinner to attend, says Hamish. I stand in the shower as long as they let me, before I have to come out to be readied. The prep team seems oblivious to the events of the day. They're all excited about the dinner. In the district, they're important enough to attend, whereas back in the capital they almost never score invitations to prestigious parties. While they try to predict what dishes will be served, I keep seeing the old man's head being blown off. I don't even pay attention to what anyone's doing to me until I'm about to leave and I see myself in the mirror. A pale pink strapless dress brushes my shoes. My hair is pinned back from my face and falling down my back in a shower of ringlets. Cinna comes up behind me and arranges a shimmering silver wrap around my shoulders. He catches my eye in the mirror. Do you like it? It's beautiful. As always, I say. Let's see how it looks with a smile, he says gently. It's his reminder that in a minute there will be cameras again. I manage to raise the corners of my mouth. There we go. When we all assemble to go down to dinner, I can see Effie is out of sorts. Surely Hamish hasn't told her about what happened in the square. I wouldn't be surprised if Cinna and Portia knew, but there seems to be an unspoken agreement to leave Effie out of the bad news loop. It doesn't take long to hear about the problem, though. Effie runs through the evening schedule, then tosses it aside. And then, thank goodness, we can all get on that train and get out of here, she says. Is... Something wrong, Effie? asks Cinna. I don't like the way that we've been treated. Being stuffed into trucks and barred from the platform, and then about an hour ago I decided to go look at the Justice Building. I'm something of an expert in architectural design, you know. Oh, yes, I've heard that, says Portia, before the pause gets too long. So I was just having a peek around, because the district ruins are going to be all the rage this year, when two peacemakers showed up and ordered me back to our quarters. One of them actually poked me with her gun, says Effie. 
I can't help thinking this is the direct result of Hamish, Peter, and me disappearing earlier in the day. It's a little reassuring, actually, to think that Hamish might have been right, that no one would have been monitoring that dusty dome where we talked. Although I bet they are now. Effie looks so distressed I spontaneously give her a hug. That's awful, Effie. Maybe we shouldn't go to dinner at all. At least until they have apologized. I know she'll never agree to this, but she brightens considerably at the suggestion, at the validation of her complaint. No, I'll manage. It's part of my job to weather the ups and downs, and we can't let you two miss your dinner. But thank you for the offer, Katniss. Effie arranges us in formation for our entrance. First the prep teams, then her, the stylists, Hamish. Peter and I, of course, will bring up the rear. Somewhere below, musicians begin to play. As the first wave of our little procession begins down the steps, Peter and I join hands. Hamish says that I was wrong to yell at you. You were only operating under his instructions, says Peter. And this not as if I haven't kept things from you in the past. I remember the shock of hearing Peter confess his love for me in front of all of Pan Am. Hamish had known about that and not told me. I think I broke a few things myself after that interview. That's just a known, he says. And your hands. There's no point to it anymore, though, is there? Not being straight with each other. No point, says Peter. We stand at the top of the stairs, giving Hamish a 15-step lead as Effie directed. Was, was that really the only time that you've ever kissed Gail? I'm so startled that I answer. Yes. With all that's happened today, has that question actually been preying on him? Lots 15, let's do it. A light hits us and I put on the most dazzling smile I can. We descend the steps and are sucked into what becomes an indistinguishable round of dinners, ceremonies, and train rides. Each day, it's the same. Wake up, get dressed, ride through cheering crowds, listen to a speech in our honor, give a thank you speech in return, but only the one the Capitol gave us. Never any personal additions now. Sometimes a brief tour. A glimpse of the sea in one district, towering forests in the other. Ugly factories, fields of wheat, stinking refineries. Dress in evening clothes, attend dinner, train. During ceremonies, we are solemn and respectful, but always linked together by our arms, our hands. At dinners, we are borderline delirious in our love for each other. We kiss, we dance, we try to get caught sneaking away to be alone. On the train, we are quietly miserable as we try to assess what effect we might be having. Even without our personal speeches to trigger dissent, Needless to say, the ones that we gave in District 11 were edited out before the event was broadcast. You can feel something in the air. The rolling boil of a pot about to run over. Not everywhere. Some crowds have the weary cattle feel that I know from District 12. But in others, particularly 8, 4, and 3, there is a genuine elation on the faces of people at the sight of us. And underneath that elation... Fury. When they chant my name, it's more of a cry for vengeance than a cheer. When the peacekeepers move in to quiet an unruly crowd, it presses back instead of retreating. And I know that there's nothing I could ever do to change this. No show of love, however believable, will turn this tide. 
if my holding out those berries was an act of temporary insanity? And these people will embrace insanity, too. Cinna begins to take in my clothes around the waist. The prep team frets over the circles under my eyes. Effie starts giving me pills to sleep, but they don't work. Not well enough. I drift off only to be roused by nightmares that have increased in number and intensity. Peta, who spends much of his night roaming the train, hears me screaming as I struggle to break out of the haze of drugs that merely prolong the horrible dreams. He manages to wake me and calm me down. Then he climbs into the bed to hold me until I fall back asleep. After that, I refuse the pills. But every night, I let him into my bed. We manage the darkness as we did in the arena, wrapped in each other's arms, guarding against the dangers that can descend at any moment. Nothing else happens, but our arrangement quickly becomes a subject of gossip on the train. When Effie brings it up to me, I think, Good. Maybe it'll get back to President Snow. I tell her we'll make an effort to be more discreet, but we don't. Back-to-back -back appearances in two and one are their own special kind of awful. Cato and Clove, the tributes from District 2, might have both made it home if Peta and I hadn't. I personally killed the girl Glimmer and the boy from District 1. As I tried to avoid looking at his family, I learned that his name was Marvel. How did I never know that? I suppose that before the games I didn't pay attention, and afterward, I didn't want to know. By the time we reach the capital, we are desperate. We make endless appearances to adoring crowds. There is no danger of an uprising here among the privileged, among those whose names are never placed in the reaping balls, whose children never die for the supposed crimes committed generations ago. We don't need to convince anybody in the capital of our love, but hold to the slim hope that we can still reach some of those we failed to convince in the districts. Whatever we do seems too little, too late. Back in our old quarters in the training center, I'm the one who suggests the public marriage proposal. Peter agrees to it, but then disappears to his room for a long time. Hamage tells me to leave him alone. I thought he wanted it, anyway, I say. Not like this. He wanted it to be real. I go back to my room and lie under the covers trying not to think of Gale and thinking of nothing else. That night on the stage before the training center, we bubble our way through a list of questions. Caesar Flickerman, in his twinkling midnight blue suit, his hair, eyelids, and lips still dyed powder blue, flawlessly guides us through the interview. When he asks us about the future, Peter gets down on one knee, pours out his heart, and begs me to marry him. I, of course... Except, Caesar is beside himself. The capital audience is hysterical. Shots of crowds around Pan Am show a country besotted with happiness. President Snow himself makes a surprise visit to congratulate us. He clasps Peter's hand and gives him an approving slap on the shoulder. He embraces me, enfolding me in the smell of blood and roses and plants a puffy kiss on my cheek. When he pulls back, his fingers digging into my arms, his face smiling into mine, I dare to raise my eyebrows. 
They ask what my lips can't. Did I do it? Was it enough? I was giving everything over to you. Keeping up the game. Promising to marry Peter. Was it enough? In answer, he gives an almost imperceptible shake of the head. I don't know who all has joined us here today, but we've got quite the audience. Hello, folks. My name is Sam, and this is Sidecar Stories. We have just finished two out of our three chapters that we're going to be reading tonight, which means I'm going to go take my break. If you are wondering what this is all about, who am I? What is this? What's going on here? My name is Sam. This is a channel that celebrates stories. We tell them to each other. We even tell them with each other on Wednesdays. Um, tabletop RPGs, occasionally games, lots of reading. We have read the entire Harry Potter series, the entire first series of uh, Percy Jackson, and now we are launching into book two of The Hunger Games. Very exciting stuff. If you want to find back episodes of this, please go ahead and look for The Flying Sidecar, wherever you get your podcasts. Flying Sidecar, wherever you get your podcast, that is how you can find out more about the back episodes of this. And if you want to know more about the channel in general, including the Discord, which is like the hub, it's the spot to be. Linktree slash Sidecar Stories, you can use the links command at any time. L-I-N-K-T-R dot E-E slash Sidecar Stories. That is where we find ourselves. Folks, I'm going to hit you with a chatter break question, and then we're going to come back and we're going to discuss it. I want to see what y'all are chatting about in chat right now first, though, before we go uh, into our break and then into our third of three chapters for the evening. Courier 6 slash Proteus Spade says, The fact that Haymitch chose Katniss was painfully obvious to me on my recent re-listen of the Spotify. Like, the whole time, I was painfully aware Katniss was interpreting signals, like being near to water, from Haymitch not sending her things. And I'm like, yeah, I don't know. I hope PETA doesn't interpret signals from an absence of gifts. She clearly had to assume Haymitch chose her. She just must have assumed PETA was also getting stuff. And when she found out not... Well, things were pretty much life and death at that point, and there wasn't much space to linger on it. On an unrelated note, Katniss's ability to assume emotions she doesn't feel, or a lack thereof, always hits me like a superpower. I've got no poker face at all, I can't hide or disguise emotion any more than your average toddler, so it's just amazing to me. Well, Proteus Spade. <laughs> it certainly does, like, it, it gives us a really strong sense of the pageantry of all of this, right? It's a big show. It's a show. The entertainment of some people and uh, at the very least the impact that it has right it's not necessarily all about like a show to make people happy to keep them coming back for more but it is a show it is designed to have an emotional impact and so the the emotions that people are portraying like Katniss like Peta as he's been so good at and she has been sort of kind of barely holding on whenever she can uh all this coaching that Hamish is doing it's all designed to have an emotional impact we we should the capital wants everyone to come away from the games feeling something strong whether it's terror or uh subservience or from the capital potentially enjoyment and investment there you go hey rick 22 that is a straightforward name and i like it thank you very very much for the prime subscription i appreciate you 
Rick22, good to have you here. <laughs> Welcome to Storytime MC. Vroom, vroom, roll out. <laughs> All right, uh, Van Saves Live says, I am a near sociopath with how easily I can fake stuff. I'm a little too good at games like Werewolf and Resistance. Uh, and then Van adds that whenever Snow is around, he's just crushingly ominous. Um, certainly the casting in the movies helped out quite a bit, but yeah, no, you are not wrong, right? He acts subtly. He speaks subtly. He moves subtly, which is disturbing. And I think this description of him as like a viper, a very good description. Folks, a chatterbreak question for you. President Snow has just given Katniss the head shake. She asked the question. The two of them understand what the question is here, right? Even though she didn't speak it out loud. It is, have I done enough? Giving everything over, keeping up the game, promising to marry Peta, as she has just done very publicly. Was it enough? President Snow answers, no. Chatterbreak question is, how is Katniss going to react? Remember, if you've read this before, please keep it spoiler-free. Folks, I love you, and I will see you in five minutes. If you're here on Twitch, you'll see the timer on the screen. If you're in Discord, uh, you can just, you'll just have to trust me. All right? You'll have to trust that I'm not, I'm not going to Ocean's Eleven your time away. That's actually not what was stuck in my head. That's just the Ocean's Eleven music because I was a little bit late. I stole a little bit of time. I did heist a little bit of your time. Sorry. I apologize. Okay. Let's talk chatter break and then we're going to do... <laughs> Once again, weird energy coming back into it. Hey folks, I'm Sam. This is Sidecar Stories. If you want to know more, check out the link tree using the links command. We're going to do... A little chatter break chat we're going to do a quick review of what we've read so far this episode and then we're going to go ahead and hit our third and final chapter for the evening now i want to hear what y'all have to say about this chatter break question katniss has just been informed no she didn't do it it wasn't enough she has failed at least thus far at least in snow's eyes how is she going to react to this that was the question. Let's see what y'all had to say. Um, Mortal says, hiding of the emotions is a skill set at this point. Um, sidecar, what, here in the sidecar says, uh, I look forward to Thursday every week. First thought this morning was, woohoo, it's Thursday. That's sidecar. Thank you, Sam. Hey, sidecar, you're very welcome. From... That's just a little bit from me to you, from sidecar to sidecar. Um, Van says, if I was Katniss, I it would be hard now to recede back to my old self. She's already felt powerless, and then after accepting a proposal that she still feels like she's got no control, especially after seeing the crowds she knows are wild at the sight of her from no recent action or choice. She's just not going to feel great. Knowing Katniss choosing to run is probably going through her head. Indeed. Indeed, a distinct possibility. Mortal says, I have lost all sense of time. I got sick, so I can't do anything with other people, and that's how I gauge what day it is. <laughs> gotcha. Gotcha. Uh, Tanisha says she's probably going to be really upset and scared for her family, but will wait until they're not being watched to try and express those emotions. 
she's a sort of private person. Yeah, definitely, Tanisha. And that's got to make it, that's sort of got to compound the difficulty of this process, which is such a public process, right? She is supposed to belong to the people now, right? She's supposed to sort of belong to this system and the people are part of that. Ugh, gross for someone who really likes to live a more solitary life like she does. You know, the only person she really likes to let in, not even her mother, uh, only person she really likes to let in is Gail. And, you know, uh, occasionally Prim. But I think she, even with Prim, she tries to sort of keep Prim somewhere below her. And by that, I mean Katniss sort of tries to keep herself up above to shield Prim from some of the, the sufferings of living in District 12. Big Mama says, I think Katniss will try to up the game, like she did with Haymitch, uh, expecting Snow to respond in the same way. Okay, so like, go in extra hard on it. Interesting. Gwen says, I'm trying to think of something to contribute, but I'm feeling a little brainless right now. Other than that, she's going to be pretty upset that she agreed to marry Peta, and it was all for nothing, since Snow isn't buying it. That is interesting, right? Gwen Dog, that's not nothing right there. Let's, let's, let's zoom in on that for a moment here, because that's not just like... The proposal is one thing, but the proposal isn't the the thing that's being celebrated right now, right? It's not the message that's going across. The proposal itself is a moment. The thing that it is trying to push across is that she and Peta are linked together. Their lives are going to be spent together. And yeah, if that like if that dedication to a life of this wasn't enough, I imagine she is going to be pretty upset. How is she going to react to the dedication of her life to this lie, this ruse, how is she going to react to that not being enough? Okay. Uh, let's see. Courier 6 says, okay, guys, I don't think I will ever finish reading this particular book. So this just comes from a guess, but I'm getting major Edward Sallow vibes from Snow here. He's in control. He knows it, but he has to flex control. It's not enough to just be... Uh, it has to be completed in some sense, and that makes him think he's losing control elsewhere. Not because Katniss is such a palpable threat, but because, I mean, if the dude smells like blood, I mean, is he doing okay physically? A good question. A good question. That is a very strange detail. That scent of blood, which Katniss did notice, was on his breath. You know, does... You, you could see it either way. Yes, her mother does have some medical, like, experience, and so she might have been proximal to that. And yet, at the same time, she likes to get out of the house when stuff like that is going on. So maybe she doesn't know what this means. Maybe it is medical, maybe it's not. She, she likely does not, like, stay close enough to really have a strong sense. Doesn't stay close enough to her mom's business, nor to President Snow. I would want to be out of the room for both of those things as well. And with that, folks, a spot of review. Give me 120 seconds to review, and then we're on to our third and final chapter for the evening. So far, today, in this episode, chapters four and five. In chapter four, Katniss is reeling from the realization that, no, it's not just another couple of weeks of this ruse. It is going to be the rest of her life that she has to maintain this facade of love for Peta. She likes Peta, she cares for him deeply, but does she love him as desperately as Snow wants everyone to think that she does? Did, does. If you put those two words together, they become diz, apparently. Um, <laughs> the, this ruse is going to have to keep up. And when they hit their first 
their first district, their first stop on this victor's tour, things go bad pretty immediately. PETA does mention, okay, let's let's stop this sort of like coldness toward one another. Can we just, let's just be friends for a while here. I'm sorry for holding you to things that you did to survive. It's not really like, it, it doesn't, it makes no sense for the two of us to blame one another when it's clearly the capital's fault for forcing us to do things that we wouldn't choose. Katniss thinks that's fantastic. Um, and frankly, so do I. <laughs> um, but at the first stop, they make their speeches, and then, you know, it's District 11. This is where Thresh and Rue are from, and so it makes sense they would tag on a little something because they were allies in the arena after a fashion. PETA does something huge. He makes a promise that one month out of every year, he's going to give, you know, he and Katniss are going to give their winnings. Or I don't know if it was him or and Katniss or just him. doesn't really matter. Going to give winnings every year to, um, to Thresh's and Rue's families. That's huge. They are going to be well taken care of until Katniss and Peter are dead, frankly. Um, that's enough money. I'll do it. But Katniss realizes she can't just stay silent. She and Rue had such a moment it would be it would be despicable. It would mean all of her like time together with Rue, everything that Rue meant to her would mean nothing if she stays silent now. And so she ad-libs a bit as well and expresses how much she appreciated Rue, how much uh, how much she uh, appreciated Thresh and respected him. But with Rue, how much she cared about Rue, how much beautiful things remind her of Rue, how much even her own sister reminds her of Rue. And then somewhere in the crowd, an old man lets out the whistle. And in unison, as if they had planned it, the citizens of District 11 raise their fingers in that District 12 salute. This salute to Katniss. Clearly, this thing that she has been tasked, that Katniss has been tasked with putting down, it does not seem that it's working so far. This is a sign of pending uprising. And as she leaves the stage, she hesitates just long enough to see the man, this old man who started the whistle. He is brought up to the stage and executed. In the next chapter, she and Peta are just trying to make it together as they rush through the districts. Bop, 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 bop. Districts eight, four, and three are all fighting back. Not, you know, not just like with displays, but actually, you know, like peacekeepers have to come and do battle with them. Uh, things are going poorly. They come up with another plan. Uh, Katniss suggests that Peta propose to her. They do it. And in this celebration, now that they're back in the capital, this celebration, Katniss, after a fashion, asks the question that is all important at this point. Was it enough? And Snow says, no.
Chapter 6 In that one slight motion, I see the end of hope. The beginning of the destruction of everything I hold dear in the world. I can't guess what form my punishment will take, how wide the net will be cast, but when it is finished, there will most likely be nothing left. So you would think that at this moment I would be in utter despair. Here's what's strange. The main thing I feel is a sense of relief that I can give up this game. That the question of whether I can succeed in this venture has been answered, even if that answer is a resounding no. That if desperate times call for desperate measures, then I am free to act as desperately as I wish. Only not here. Not quite yet. It's essential to get back to District 12, because the main part of any plan will include my mother and sister, Gail and his family, and Peta, if I can get him to come with us. I add Hamish to the list. These are the people I must take with me when I escape into the wild. How I will convince them, where we will go in the dead of winter, what it will take to evade capture are unanswered questions. But at least now I know what I must do. So instead of crumpling to the ground and weeping, I find myself standing up straighter and with more confidence than I have in weeks. My smile, while somewhat insane, is not forced. And when President Snow silences the audience and says, What do you think about us throwing them a wedding right here in the Capitol? I pull off a girl almost catatonic with joy without a hitch. Caesar Flickerman asks if the president has a date in mind. Well, before we set a date, we better clear it with Katniss's mother, says the president. The audience gives a big laugh and the president puts his arm around me. Maybe if the whole country puts its mind to it, we can get you married before you're 30. You'll probably have to pass a new law, I say with a giggle. <laughs> if that's what it takes, says the president with a conspiratorial good humor. Oh, the fun we two have together. The party, held in the banquet room of President Snow's mansion, has no equal. The 40-foot ceiling has been transformed into the night sky, and the stars look almost exactly as they do at home. I suppose they look the same from the capital, but who would know? There's always too much light from the city to see the stars here. About halfway between the floor and the ceiling, musicians float on what look like fluffy white clouds, but I can't see what holds them aloft. Traditional dining tables have been replaced by innumerable stuffed sofas and chairs, some surrounding fireplaces, others beside elegant, fragrant flower gardens or ponds filled with exotic fish so that people can eat and drink and do whatever they please in the utmost comfort. There's a large tiled area in the center of the room that serves as everything from a dance floor to a stage for the performers who come and go to another spot to mingle with the flamboyantly dressed guests. But the real star of the evening? The food. Tables laden with delicacies line the walls. Everything you can think of, and things you've never dreamed of, lie in wait. Whole roasted cows and pigs and goats still turning on spits. Huge platters of fowl stuffed with savory fruits and nuts. Ocean creatures drizzled in sauces or begging to be dipped in spicy concoctions. Countless cheeses, breads, vegetables, sweets, waterfalls of wine, and streams of spirits that flicker with flames. My appetite has returned with my desire to fight back. After weeks of feeling too worried to eat, 
I'm famished. I want to taste everything in the room, I tell Peter. I can see him trying to read my expression, to figure out my transformation. Since he doesn't know that President Snow thinks I've failed, he can only assume I think we have succeeded. Perhaps even that I have some genuine happiness at our engagement. His eyes reflect his puzzlement, but only briefly, because we're on camera. That you better pace yourself. All right, now more than one bite of each dish, I say. My resolve is almost immediately broken at the first table, which has twenty or so soups when I encounter a creamy pumpkin brew sprinkled with slivered nuts and tiny black seeds. I could eat this all night, I exclaim, but I don't. I weaken again at a clear green broth that I can only describe as tasting like springtime, and again when I try a frothy pink soup dotted with raspberries. Faces appear. Names are exchanged, pictures taken, kisses brushed on cheeks. Apparently, my Mockingjay pin spawned a new fashion sensation because several people come up to show me their accessories. My bird has been replicated on belt buckles, embroidered into silk lapels, even tattooed in intimate places. Everyone wants to wear the winner's token. I can only imagine how nuts that makes President Snow. But what can he do? The games were such a hit here, where the berries were only a symbol of a desperate girl trying to save her lover. Peta and I make no effort to find company, but are constantly sought out. We are what no one wants to miss at the party. I act delighted, but I've got zero interest in these capital people. They're only distractions from the food. Every table presents new temptations, and even in my restricted one-taste-per-dish regimen, I begin filling up quickly. I pick up a small roasted bird, bite into it, and my tongue floods with orange sauce. Delicious. But I make Peter eat the remainder because I want to keep tasting things, and the idea of throwing away food, as I see so many people doing casually, is abhorrent to me. After about ten tables, I'm stuffed, and we've only sampled a small number of the dishes available. Just then, my prep team descends on us. They're nearly incoherent between the alcohol they've consumed and their ecstasy at being at such a grand affair. Why aren't you eating? says Octavia. Oh, I have been, but I couldn't hold another bite, I say. They all laugh as if that's the silliest thing they've ever heard. <laughs> no one lets that stop them, says Flavius. They lead us over to a table that holds tiny stemmed wine glasses filled with clear liquid. Drink this. Peter takes one up to take a sip, and they lose it. Not here, says Octavia. You've got to do it in there, says Venia, pointing to the doors that lead to the toilets. Or you'll get it all over the floor. Peter looks at the glass again and puts it together. Do you mean this is going to make me puke? My prep team laughs hysterically. Of course, so you can keep eating, says Octavia. I've been in there twice already. Everyone does it, or else how would you have any fun at a feast? I'm speechless, staring at the pretty little glasses and all that they imply. Peter sets his back on the table with such precision you'd think it might detonate. Come on, Countless. Let's dance. Music filters down from the clouds as he leads me away from the team, the table out onto the floor. We only know a few dances at home, and 
They're the kind that go with a fiddle and flute and require a good deal of space. But Effie has shown us some that are popular in the capital. The music is slow and dreamlike, so Peter pulls me into his arms and we move in a circle with practically no steps at all. You could do this dance on a pie plate. We're quiet for a while. Then Peter speaks in a strained voice. You go along with it, thinking that you can deal with it, thinking that maybe they're not so bad. And then you... He cuts himself off. All I can think of is the emaciated bodies of the children on our kitchen table as our mother prescribes what the parents can't give. More food. Now that we're rich, she'll send them home with some. But often in the old days, there was nothing to give, and the child was past saving anyway. And here in the capital, they're vomiting for the pleasure of filling their bellies again and again. Not from some illness of body or mind, not from spoiled food. It's what everyone does at a party. Expected. Part of the fun. One day when I dropped by to give Hazel the game, Vic was homesick with a bad cough. Being part of Gail's family, the kid has to eat better than 90% of the rest of District 12, but he still spent about 15 minutes talking about how they'd opened a can of corn syrup from Parcel Day, and each had a spoonful on bread, and we're going to maybe have more later in the week. How Hazel had said that he could have a tiny bit in a cup of tea to soothe his cough, but he wouldn't feel right unless the others had some too. If it's like that at Gail's, What's it like in the other houses? Peter, they bring us here to fight to the death for their entertainment, I say. Really, this is nothing by comparison. I know. I know that, but... Sometimes I think I can't stand it anymore. To the point where I'm not sure what I'll do. He pauses and then whispers... Maybe we were wrong, Katniss. About what? About trying to subdue things in the districts. My head turns swiftly from side to side, but no one seems to have heard. The camera crew got sidetracked at a table of shellfish, and the couples dancing around us are either too drunk or too self-involved to notice. Sorry, he says. He should be. This is no place to be voicing such thoughts. Save it for home, I tell him. Just then, Portia appears with a large man who looks vaguely familiar. She introduces him as Plutarch Heavensby, the new head game maker. Plutarch asks Peta if he can steal me for a dance. Peta's recovered his camera face and good-naturedly passes me over, warning the man not to get too attached. I don't want to dance with Plutarch Heavensby. I don't want to feel his hands, one resting against mine, one on my hip. I'm not used to being touched, except by PETA or my family, and I rank game makers somewhere below maggots in terms of creatures I want to be in contact with my skin. But he seems to sense this, and holds me almost at arm's length as we turn on the floor. We chit-chat about the party, about the entertainment, about the food, and then he makes a joke about avoiding punch since training. 
I don't get it. And then I realize he's the man who tripped backward into the punch bowl when I shot an arrow at the game makers during the training session. Well, not really. I was shooting an apple out of their roast pig's mouth. But I made them jump. Oh, you're th you're the one who... I laughed, remembering him splashing back into the punch bowl. Yeah, and you'll be pleased to know I've never recovered, says Plutarch. I want to point out that 22 dead tributes will never recover from the games he helped create either. But I only say, good. So, you're the head game maker this year. That must be a big honor. Between you and me, there weren't many takers for the job, he says. So much responsibility for how the games turn out. Yeah, the last guy's dead, I think. He must know about Seneca Crane, but he doesn't look the least bit concerned. Are you planning the quarter quail games already? I say. Yes. Yeah, well, they've been in the works for years, of course. Arenas aren't built in a day. But the, uh, shall we say, the flavor of the games is being determined now. Believe it or not, I've got a strategy meeting tonight, he says. Plutarch steps back and pulls a gold watch on a chain from his vest pocket. He flips open the lid, sees the time, and frowns. I'll have to be going soon. He turns the watch so I can see its face. It starts at midnight. That seems pretty late for a... I say, but then something distracts me. Plutarch has run his thumb across the crystal of the watch face, and for a moment, an image appears, glowing as if lit by candlelight. It's another Mockingjay, exactly like the pin on my dress, only this one disappears. He snaps the watch closed. That's very pretty, I say. Oh, it's more than pretty. It's one of a kind. If anyone asks about me, I've gone home to bed. The meetings are supposed to be kept secret. But I thought it'd be safe to tell you. Yes, your secret is safe with me, I say. As we shake hands, he gives a small bow, a common gesture here in the capital. Well, I'll see you next summer at the games, Cadmus. Best wishes on your engagement. And good luck with your mother. I'll need it, I say. Plutarch disappears and I wander through the crowd, looking for Peta, as strangers congratulate me. On my engagement, on my victory at the games, on my choice of lipstick. I respond, but really I'm thinking about Plutarch's showing off his pretty one-of-a-kind watch to me. There was something strange about it, almost clandestine. But why? Maybe he thinks someone else will steal his idea of putting a disappearing Mockingjay on a watch face? Yeah, he probably paid a fortune for it, and now he can't show it to anyone because he's afraid someone will make a cheap knockoff version. Oh, only in the capital. I find Peter admiring a table of elaborately decorated cakes. Bakers have come in from the kitchens, especially to talk frosting with him, and you can see them tripping over one another to answer his questions. At his request, they assemble an assortment of little cakes for him to take back to District 12, where he can examine their work in quiet. If he said that we've got to be on the train at one, I wonder what time it is, he says, glancing around. Almost midnight, I reply. 
I pluck a chocolate flower from a cake with my fingers and nibble on it, so beyond worrying about manners. Time to say thank you and farewell, trills Effie at my elbow. It's one of those moments when I just love her compulsive punctuality. We collect Cinna and Portia, and she escorts us around to say goodbye to important people, and then herds us toward the door. Uh, shouldn't we thank President Snow, says Peter. It's his house. Oh, he's not one for big parties. Too busy, says Effie. I've already arranged for the necessary notes and gifts to be sent to him tomorrow. Here you are. Effie gives a little wave to two capital attendants who have an inebriated Hamish propped up in between them. We travel through the streets of the capital in a car with darkened windows. Behind us, another car brings up the prep team. The throngs of people celebrating are so thick it's slow going. But Effie has all this down to a science, and at exactly one o'clock we are back on the train and it's pulling out of the station. Hamish is deposited in his room. Cinna orders tea and we all take seats around the table while Effie rattles her scheduled papers and reminds us we're still on tour. Here's the Harvest Festival in District 12 to think about, so I think we drink our tea and head straight to bed. No one argues. When I open my eyes, it's early afternoon. My head rests on Peter's arm. I don't remember him coming in last night. I turn, being careful not to disturb him, but he's already awake. No nightmares, he says. What? You didn't have any nightmares last night? He's right. For the first time in ages, I've slept through the night. I had a dream, though, I say, thinking back. I was following a mocking jay through the woods for a long time. It was Rue, really. I mean, when it sang, it had her voice. Where did she take you? He says, brushing my hair off my forehead. I don't know. We never arrived. But I felt happy. Well, you slept like you were happy. Peter, how come I never know when you're having a nightmare? I don't know. I don't think I cry out or thrash around or anything. I just come to paralysed with terror. You should wake me, I say, thinking about how I can interrupt his sleep two or three times on a bad night. How long it takes me to calm down. It's not necessary. My nightmares are usually about losing you. I'm okay once I realise that you're there. Ugh. Peter makes comments like this in such an off-handed way. And it's like being hit in the gut. He's only answering my question honestly. He's not pressing me to reply in kind, to make any declaration of love. But I still feel awful. As if I've been using him in some terrible way. Have I? I don't know. I, I only know that for the first time I feel immoral about him being here in my bed. Which is ironic since we are officially engaged now. It's going to be worse when I'm home and sleeping alone again. That's right. We're almost home. The agenda for District 12 includes a dinner at Mayor Undersea's house tonight and a victory rally in the square during the Harvest Festival tomorrow. We always celebrate the Harvest Festival on the final day of the Victory Tour, but usually it means a meal at home or with a few friends if you can afford it. This year it will be a public affair, and since the Capitol will be throwing it, everyone in the whole district will have full bellies. 
Most of our prepping will take place at the mayor's house, since we're back to being covered in furs for outdoor appearances. We're only at the train station briefly, to smile and wave as we pile into our car. We don't even get to see our families until dinner tonight. I'm glad it's going to be at the mayor's house instead of the justice building, where the memorial for my father was held, where they took me after the reaping for those wrenching goodbyes to my family. The Justice Building is too full of sadness. But I like Mayor Undersea's house, especially now that his daughter, Madge, and I are friends. We always were, in a way. It became official when she came to say goodbye to me before I left for the games. Then she gave me the Mockingjay pin for good luck. After I got home, we started spending time together. It turns out Madge has plenty of empty hours to fill, too. It was a little awkward at first, since we didn't know what to do. Other girls our age, I've heard them talking about boys, or other girls, or clothes. Madge and I aren't gossipy, and clothes bore me to tears. But after a few false starts, I realized she was dying to go into the woods, so I've taken her a couple of times and showed her how to shoot. She's trying to teach me piano, but mostly I just like to listen to her play. Sometimes we eat at each other's houses. Madge likes mine better. Her parents seem nice, but I don't think she sees a whole lot of them. Her father has District 12 to run, and her mother gets fierce headaches that force her to stay in bed for days. Maybe you should take her to the Capitol, I say, during one of them. We weren't playing the piano that day, because even two floors away, the sound caused her mother pain. They can fix her up, I bet. Yes, but you don't go to the Capitol unless they invite you, says Madge unhappily. Even the mayor's privileges are limited. When we reach the mayor's house, I only have time to give Madge a quick hug before Effie hustles me off to the third floor to get ready. After I'm prepped and dressed in a full-length silver gown, I've still got an hour to kill before dinner. So I slip off to find her. Madge's bedroom is on the second floor, along with several guest rooms and her father's study. I stick my head into the study to say hello to the mayor, but it's empty. The television's droning on, and I stop to watch shots of Peta and me at the Capitol party last night. Dancing, eating, kissing. This will be playing in every household in Pan Am right now. The audience must be sick to death of the star-crossed lovers from District 12. I know I am. I'm leaving the room when a beeping noise catches my attention. I turn back to the screen of the television as it goes black. Then the words, update on District 8, start flashing. Instinctively, I know this is not for my eyes, but something intended only for the mayor. I should go. Quickly. Instead, I find myself stepping closer to the television. An announcer I've never seen before appears. It's a woman with graying hair and a hoarse, authoritative voice. She warns that conditions are worsening and a level 3 alert has been called. Additional forces are being sent into District 8 and all textile production has ceased. They cut away from the woman to the main square in District 8. I recognize it because I was there only last week. There are still banners with my face waving from the rooftops. Below them, there's a mob scene. The square is packed with screaming people, their faces hidden with rags and homemade masks, throwing bricks. Buildings burn. Peacekeepers shoot into the crowd, killing at random. I've never seen anything like it, but I can only be witnessing 
one thing. This is what President Snow calls an uprising. And that is the end of our chapters for the evening. Everyone, my name is Sam. This is Sidecar Stories. I hope you have enjoyed. If you want to find more of this, whether it's the back episodes, you can find those in Discord, uh, or the discussions, you can find those in Discord. Uh, I've got a few other links in that link tree as well, including uh, Instagram and Twitter. But uh, really... Really, the important one is the Discord. That's where we have all of our big chats. That's where uh, you can go to listen. If you like the audio-only version of this, you can go to listen live there as well. Um, I've heard some folks say that if you're having trouble with Twitter, uh, Twitter with Twitch, um, Discord will treat you even better uh, audio-wise. Of course, there's no video there, but for some people, eh, not big deal. Not a big deal. Everyone, next week, chapters 7, 8, and nine, the end of part one of book two. <laughs> Episode three, part one, book two. Blah, 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 blah. Now, this is the uh, the last the last uh, episode of part one, um, and uh, that means that let me see, let me see here. Part two is called the Quell. Cha- uh, part one is called the Spark. We're going to be finishing off the Spark uh, next week. Part two is called The Quell. We'll be beginning that the week after. And then part three is called The Enemy. Interesting. Interesting. The Spark, The Quell, and The Enemy. What is it that Katniss is going to have to do in participation uh, in these games, right? She's she's done her bit. She's She's been there, done that with the, uh, <laughs> uh, with the games. And now she's going to be probably training whichever uh, tributes come up next. Haymitch has expressed how difficult that is, how tough those choices can be. But folks, thank you very, very much for joining me here. If you like tabletop RPGs, a la The Adventure Zone or Critical Role or Dimension 20, we have got our own show. And honestly, as of yesterday, I don't think, I don't know. I don't know if I've been happier with a a sh- an episode that I've streamed before. Yesterday's episode was fantastic. Um, And so if you would like to come hang out, as a matter of fact, hang out and play in that campaign because we have got two main characters. One is played by myself. Uh, Their name is Illyria and they are a werewolf about to come up on their very first change. It wouldn't be surprising if it happened next week. Um, And... The, uh, the chat play character is named Igor. Igor is uh, an elf boy, or at least was, before his untimely death. Now, Igor is a ghost, and y'all get to do special ghost stuff in addition to being a, a stealthy alchemist boy. Um, and uh, we, both of us, are just trying to make our way at Castle Vesperal, at the Vesperal Academy for Duskin. Everybody. I hope you have enjoyed the reading today. I hope you have enjoyed the stories from yesterday. Um, An incredible session with our special guest, Mr. Halfbit. I'm very thankful to Halfbit for coming out. Um, And uh, y'all, I hope you've enjoyed this week quite a bit. 
Sapphire says, great stream tonight. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate you. Uh, Orly Rose, thank you for coming in, by the way, uh, to uh, shout out the adventures we've been having on Wednesdays. That is lovely. Uh, thanks for checking it out. Uh, Van, even if you are just there to lurk, that is quite all right. I know, uh, you know, there's there is the whole element of like, you know, Igor only does stuff when chat says so. But at the same time, if you're just there to listen, that is totally fine. Um, Natalie says, I've loved tonight's chapters. Yeah, tonight's chapter, we, we're getting into it. We're getting into it. Um, I think we can anticipate that much like the first book, this book is not going to disappoint us. The pacing has been excellent. Um, you know, we, we spend so much time outside of the arena and I think these books are much, much richer for it. Um, and, uh, yeah, so now, uh, being on this victory tour, seeing how the world is, seeing how, uh, Katniss is sort of essentially being forced to learn a whole new set of survival skills that are totally different from the ones that she knew before. It's fascinating. It's fascinating. It's been an incredible journey thus far, and I really appreciate everyone who has joined me here tonight. Uh, if you enjoy, please drop a follow um, if you have not already, and uh, I will welcome you to the Punk Ruffians with Open Arms. Orly Rose says, I keep forgetting this is the beginning because, like, we were already slamming into the action. There's so much more coming. It kills me not to go in for sneak peeks. Yes, indeed. And uh, this, this has been fun for me as well because it's been long enough since I read these books that uh, I don't remember all of the little twists and turns. Um, and so, you know, a, a decent bit of this. I remember, mostly what I remember is like the beginning of the quarter quell and uh, a couple of points like halfway through it. Um, and then I remember how this ends. But other than that, like how things go before uh, the quarter quell begins has escaped my memory completely. Uh, much of the actual experience of the quarter quell has escaped me as well. And so I'm I'm excited. It's fun every week coming back into this. And I'm super glad we're reading this series. Y'all, thank you a ton for joining me tonight. It has been delightful. Thank you a ton. Um, I really, really appreciate you folks uh, who have shared about the channel. Uh, please do, if you are, if you want this channel to grow, if you want folks to be, uh, you know, coming around here, I would love to have you here with me. And I would love for uh, your friends to get in as well. So if you know people who like to read, if you know people who like tabletop RPGs and want to know what that's all about, or they've never experienced a chat play campaign before, uh, send them over our way. You can go ahead and, if you wish... Um, Definitely make sure to tag me in it. Just sidecar stories, wherever you're tagging. Like I said, Twitter, Instagram, those are the ones I most, mostly keep an eye on. Uh, and I should add that if you are sharing about uh, the Wednesday show, over here on, on Thursdays, Flying Sidecar, I do bad beans for people who share about the show. Over on, t uh, on uh, Wednesdays for the tabletop RPG business, you become an NPC in the world. You, you become a character that exists in the realms of Reseda. So just keep that in mind if you're curious. If you're curious, if you want to become a... If you want to have your name thrown onto a character over there, you will certainly have it. And we've got tons of students, tons of teachers, tons of people in the town of Dawngreet nearby. There's, there's, there are a lot of characters need names. I would love to add yours to the list. Um, so go ahead and uh, use the hashtag of whichever show you're watching. Uh, either Side Cannons, that's two N's, Side cannons! Or flying sidecar, if you are listening to this here. Or, hey, maybe you just want to tell people about the uh, uh, about vintage sidecar. Tally-ho. Uh, so vintage sidecar for the classics, flying sidecar for what we're doing here tonight, and on Wednesdays for the tabletop RPG, that is side cannons! 
use the hashtag and then um yeah i mean go ahead and share that uh that link tree that's the that is the link that's the one right there folks thank you so very very much for joining me today it has been a pleasure as always and i will see you next week bye bye